Davos, the agenda. The World Economic Forum was back in Davos last week for the first time since 2020 for its annual winter gathering. But exactly what happened when over 50 heads of state and over 600 CEOs gathered for this week-long event in the remote village of Davos? Hi, my name is Dennis and Gregory. This is the Elevate podcast. I recently recorded an episode where I examined the role of the World Economic Forum and the power that it does have over our society, how it operates, the mechanisms of its power and influence. And in tonight's episode, which I'm recording live, we'll explore the program from last week's event in Davos. Now, this will touch upon some of the wider themes of what you could describe as the World Economic Forum's overall agenda. But tonight, we'll focus primarily on the conversations that took place in Davos last week. So, what actually went down in Davos? Now, Klaus Schwab told the elected officials and corporate leaders in attendance that the world's present economic and geopolitical challenges are opportunities for transformation. And looking back at the program, it's evidently clear that continuing to transform systems or perhaps tilt them in the favor of the house of this exclusive club was a big part of the conversation. Notice, and these points are taken directly from the program, how often the term new system is involved in the overall discussion. Point one, addressing the current energy and food crisis in the context of a new system for energy, climate, and nature. Addressing the current high inflation, low growth, high debt in the context of a new system for investment, trade, and infrastructure. Addressing the current industry headwinds in the context of a new system for harnessing frontier technologies for private sector innovation and resilience. Addressing the current social vulnerabilities in the context of a new system for work, skills, and care. And five, addressing the current geopolitical conflicts in the context of a new system for dialogue and cooperation in a multipolar world. Now, none of these themes are really new news. A new system for energy is the Green New Deal or Net Zero. A new system for international cooperation is some form of global governance involving private-public partnerships in a multi-stakeholder world. A new system for investment and trade covers a lot of topics indeed, but things like central bank digital currencies are increasingly part of that conversation. Now, you could argue that... <laughs> What really underpins these topics is four things. Number one, new systems. Yes, reforming global systems of politics and finance were clearly part of the agenda. Number two, and these are my words, you won't find these on the program. Number two is controlling the narratives, making lies more believable and appealing, you could argue. Countering misinformation, censorship and limiting public discourse. And four, tangible solutions, taking more direct action via enforcement and authoritarian policy. Again, these are my interpretations of some of the nature of the work that is done within the confines of Davos. Um, but given that the World Economic Forum is best known as a narrative and ideas generator for the global ruling class, one could argue, one might be under the impression that Davos would be a place for healthy and robust debate. But on the contrary, the event is stifled by an incredible conformity expressed by speakers and attendees alike. And for all the talk of diversity and inclusion, it doesn't seem that diversity and inclusion of thought are part of the rhetoric. 
regardless of who populates the panels and the talks and the speeches, whether it's the invited corporate media, the government officials or business executives or thought leaders from around the world, there's never any apparent dissent or difference opinions in their projection. Morgan Stanley, CEO on Thursday, said that world, the World Economic Forum at Davos is an echo chamber. He told Bloomberg that this echo chamber at Davos, where everybody, this is an echo chamber at Davos where everybody is essentially repeating back whatever they heard from the last person. Veteran investor Glenn Hutchings added that there's nothing wrong with consensus views, but isn't it key to ask yourselves, where might we be wrong? Where are the blind spots? And Davos isn't exactly conducive to that. You're in an intense environment with very little time and very little air. So whilst dissent may be absent at the event, those that challenge the dominant narratives of the World Economic Forum do seem to be getting through. There was no mention in the program of Build Back Better. In fact, the Great Reset was not even explicitly mentioned on the program. And all these other buzzwords were seemingly absent. So perhaps the conspiracy theorists, <laughs> the far right, as we get labeled, are getting through to the World Economic Forum. But it's certainly not without a fight. A big theme was distrust and disinformation. Tuesday's session saw an epic double whammy with the New York Times opinion editor Kathleen Kingsbury hosting um, Disrupting Distrust and the former CNN editor Brian Stelter chairing the clear and present danger of disinformation. Now, none of these panels reflected upon the nature of misinformation and disinformation as it comes from organizations like the WEF, the WHO and the UN and other public bodies. Rather how the public themselves are uh, challenging narratives through disinformation in social media. And the conversation really went like this. It's how do we make people believe us and how do we censor people who disagree with us? Okay, it was a little more nuanced than that, but that is the critical theme that underpinned the conversations. How can the public regulators and social media companies better collaborate to tackle disinformation as information pollution, they called it, a new form of pollution here. You heard it here, I would say first, but last week is where we heard it first. Information pollution spreads at unprecedented speed and scale. Unprecedented, by the way, the most overused word <laughs> in modern history. Now, the star of the panel was New York Times publisher uh, A.G. Salzberger, who proclaimed that disinformation is the most existential threat within every other major challenge that we are grappling with as a society. And all I have to say to that is, right. Although <clears throat> you could argue that they have a point. We are drowning in misinformation. We are drowning in disinformation. And we also know that new tools, that like AI-based tools, will make it incredibly easy to create fake news and distribute it at scale. You know, it's very easy now to modify pictures and videos to make them appear real. So the threat of misinformation and disinformation is a real one. But where is it originating from is an even bigger question. And we've seen over the last couple of years how much of that disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, and every other type of uh, non-information has originated from government sources or official bodies is <laughs> unprecedented. So we have to be aware of the sources of it uh, as well as the nature of such information. Now, speaking of disinformation uh, deliberately spread by public bodies, vaccines, vaccines, vaccines everywhere. Not surprising this one. Uh, on Tuesday, there was a whole panel which included the WHO director Tedros 
with the focus on creating new, guess what, safe and effective vaccines. That word has been tattooed in your mind already now. So, uh, uh, of course, every new release will be exactly that too. Uh, and we're back to the 100-day mission. Yes, the WHO's initiative designed to create a system where any future disease outbreak will have a new brand spanking vaccine, safe and effective, safe and effective to be used within the first 100 days of the outbreak. Uh, and then there is the right unhonorable uh, Tony Blair, who gleefully announced a whole new host of vaccines and injectables are on the horizon whoop-de-doo, and that COVID has provided an opportunity to create digital infrastructures to monitor who's vaccinated and who's not vaccinated for all of the vaccines that will come down the line. I mean, how many are they planning? How many new future disease outbreaks are we anticipating here? Most evidence would suggest we are facing lower incidents of disease outbreaks, but perhaps not, given how much money was accumulated by the individuals attended at Davos this time around. Perhaps we can expect a few more of these coming down the line. But now I really am entering into conspiracy zone. Um, but this idea of 100-day vaccines, did that really work out well last time? The mainstream narrative will have you believe so. Uh, but the evidence all around us is suggesting otherwise. What could possibly go wrong? Now, uh, on the matter of pandemics and vaccines, Helen Clark, who's the chief author of the World Health Organization's independent review of the COVID global policies, uh, mentioned the pandemic planning treaty and the reform of the international health regulations, an important reminder that global legislation is very much on the horizon. In fact, there's events occurring this month looking at these very concepts. We must remain vigilant to the accumulation of power that is sought by bodies like the WHO. Now, other related talks on the program included transforming medicine, redefining life, redefining life. That's a big topic. The panel discussed, amongst other things, bioengineering, the changing definition of being human, perhaps the post-human world that we're moving towards with the birth of AI and transhumanism. Uh, but it's not just what it means to be human that was on the agenda. It's also what we will eat. That's right. You will eat bugs and you will be happy. Revolutionizing food security was one of the key topics of the event. What breakthrough technology and innovation could revolutionize consumption patterns in the future? <laughs> I.e., uh, how can we determine the types of food that you and I will eat uh, over the long term? I.e., fake meat, artificial food, and ultimately the death of agriculture and perhaps our health. Now, the World Economic Forum calls for radical policy measures to bring about the food transition to zero net emission foods like insects. This means imposing such a burden on the dairy and cattle industries that it renders them impossible to function, paving the way for a new insect industry as well as artificial food production. And during another panel, Jim Snabe, who's the chairman of one of the largest industrial manufacturing companies in the world, Siemens, he told a panel that one billion people should stop eating meat in order to save the climate. He went on to say that I predict we will have proteins that don't come from meat in the future. They'll probably taste even better. They'll have zero carbon and much healthier. Now, can you imagine a world where artificial food that is manufactured in a lab will end up being better for your health than that which originates from nature? Again, they'll have you believe that this food is entirely not only safe and healthy, but 
We won't pay attention to the, the short or long-term consequences of such decisions because now we're making a lot of money from the situation and, of course, doing our virtue signaling bit for the climate. Now, again, I always feel like I need to caveat anytime I mention the word climate, and I'm going to go on a climate tirade in a moment. I myself am somewhat of a tree-hugging, peace-loving hippie. <laughs> and that means I do indeed have a lot of care and attention and love for Mother Earth. I do indeed wish to live in a world that is much freer of pollution than it is now. Uh, I'm not some sort, sort of absolute environmental denial uh, individual. <laughs> I don't even know these terms that ban get banded around to essentially discredit anyone that says anything negative about climate change. Uh, but rather, I am someone that does seek to tread lightly on the earth and do my bit. But nonetheless, <laughs> I also do my bit when it comes to preserving freedoms and autonomy and agency of humankind. And I do believe that actually individual society and the planet can flourish in tandem. Um, just under the, t the, t the current trajectory we're on, it's seemingly unlikely to unfold that way without intervention. So, of course, the golden crown jewels climate was on display throughout the event across the five days, and the net zero crowd received a hugely warm reception as the renewal industry, uh, the renewable energy industry rubbed shoulders with big oil executives. How ironic, how hypocritical. Awash with cash after a year of high oil prices, fossil fuel producers have the firepower, of course, now to invest in green energy. But will they do that? Maybe not. Is it necessary? Who knows? John Kerry, everyone's favorite person at the event, former senator, former secretary of state, and now chief climate alarmist for the Biden administration, essentially went on a tirade that suggested it's too late to save the planet from global warming. Yet he claimed that climate programs still need more money, 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 money. That's right. He said the word money seven times, <laughs> meaning that he doubts that the global uh, temperatures will stay under the cap of one and a half degrees. And when he's talking about the money that we need to be spending, he's not talking about the money in the room at Davos, of course, although a little bit maybe trying to, uh, to, to have the money spent. But really, he's talking more about our tax money and how our tax money is spent. People like our herd and money like you and I, how this is spent. And uh, what Kerry actually said is that he's not convinced that we're going to get there in time, uh, uh, which is to avoid the kind of worst projected consequences of the crisis that he imagines. Now, uh, the cap of one and a half degrees, by the way, uh, which is uh, based upon uh, an elevation above pre-industrial temperatures set by scientists where there's no actual scientific consensus, although people will have you led to believe that there is. Um, but he continues, despite what he said on this crusade that hopes to strip Westerners of both their wealth Yes, he did say money seven times. You can watch the speech. And freedom to move on, to move about, to do their own thing. And, you know, this, this whole idea that one must restrain one's liberties in order to do good for the planet is becoming intrinsically linked to the conversation. Um, what's more is over the course of the event, the idea of personal limits of our own CO2 emissions, how it would be tracked and traced and surveilled, Limiting people to three tons of carbon emissions per year was banded around across the event and that those who exceed their limit should be forced to pay for their pleasure, uh, for, the, for the pleasure of doing so. 
And of course, these measures always impinge hardest on the least fortunate members of society. Now, just for context, if, you, if you're thinking three tons of CO2, Dan, that sounds a heck of a lot of emissions. I don't know how this is measured, but put it this way. If you're watching from the US, in the US, the average person uh, emits or contributes to the emission of 16 tons of CO2 per year. In Norway, which is often kind of seen as the, the kind of virtue capital of the world, they admit nine tons of CO2 per year. 5.6 tons in the UK. And if you really want to get out your virtue signaling card about your own country's contribution to the carbon emissions, then you can simply pack your bags, move to one of the poorer nations, live in poverty, and then you will find that you're living in a country that has far lower carbon emissions. There is inextricable evidence that the net zero policies uh, in the developing nations in particular, will keep people poor. It will keep people starving. It will keep people dying unnecessarily. This is a very tricky component. You know, there's a lot more I could say on the net zero uh, crusade, but I'll leave it there for now. But without any self-awareness, John Kerry, the man who flies in private jets, he's got multiple homes, which most people consider to be mansion-like, and more cars than most families, and up until a few years ago also owned a yacht, preached about the way that we live and thundered against the incredible sort of destructive processes of growth in the way that he interprets it. But his luxurious lifestyle and those of the wealthy men and women fighting global warming must be okay because he assured members of his audience that they are all special a select group of human beings who are able to sit in a room, come together and talk about saving the planet. Of course, talking about saving the planet is one thing, and then living with this huge hypocrisy is another. Uh, there certainly is a lot of gas coming out of Davos, that's for sure. And it's not just the gas that's spoken from the stage, it's actually emissions. According to a Greenpeace study released on Friday, over a thousand private jets descended upon the summit in the plush Swiss holiday resort guided by, guided by over 5,000 troops, uh, served by numerous escorts. It's turned out, you know, there's this whole controversy of prostitution surrounding Davos. That's a different story altogether. But the sheer volume of flights generated four times the amount of carbon emissions that uh, an aircraft, uh, such an aircraft, would produce in an average week. Greenpeace accused attendees of ecological hypocrisy, questioning why WEF claims to be committed to the global goal of keeping warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius when emissions generated by all private jets flying in and out of Davos airports last year were equivalent to the emissions produced by approximately 350,000 average cars in a week. Um, now, unfortunately, global warming is not the only weapon that the elites are using to exercise greater control over humanity. The unelected uh, ruling class of the WF are eager to push the world towards a universal collectivist state that would be held down foot and boot uh, over our freedoms. And according to the WF, individual freedom is a luxury that citizens can no longer afford. Would-be tyrants can always find lofty pretexts under the idea of the greater good 
to enchain and enslave their victims, and in doing so, stamp out free speech, crush dissent, and quash privacy. And lo and behold, <laughs> these are subjects that are on the tableau for this particular event. Let's talk about free speech. The WF says freedom of speech is the greatest barrier to inflicting uh, the great reset upon humanity. That's not what they say, actually. That's what I say. <laughs> the WEF is calling for a global framework to regulate online harm, a.k.a. worldwide censorship. Now, when the internet came along, we experienced more freedom, too much freedom from the government's point of view. The censorship that we now know for sure dominates all of the big tech platforms that we are using is merely an extension of a very old practice. We've not had true free speech now for certain generations. But with the variety of these platforms and with newspapers and with Twitter and others, we're experiencing now with alternative media, different platforms and channels, a new flood of truth. You know, there's an unveiling uh, of the emperor that is wearing no clothes, if you will. The Internet is slowly but surely becoming again what it was supposed to be, a place for free discourse which is exactly why the power structures want to shut down free speech. The Davos pro-censorship fervor was epitomized by panelist Vera Jouvra, the European Commission vice president. She declared that the US will soon have laws prohibiting illegal hate speech like Europe is developing. And of course, that word hate speech is a catch-all term to determine uh, anything that could be deemed untoward. And all of the definitions of misinformation, disinformation are deliberately vague. And in fact, the US is even talking about term and, uh, terming some of this disinformation, misinformation as an act of terrorism. Well, one should apply that own lens upon one's own activities, I would suggest. Now, it's not only free speech uh, that is under threat, it's your privacy too. Amongst many of the talks that featured new forms of surveillance structures. A new digital payment network was unveiled, which could create a global payment architecture for central bank digital currencies. It's currently being developed by Red Date Technology, a company headquartered in Hong Kong, and it's seemingly aspiring to take over the world and inevitably help accelerate a new dawn of social engineering via finance. This is the mechanism that will enable uh, central bank digital currencies to become interoperable, meaning that they can work interconnectedly country by country. It's a new architecture that will enable this type of technology to accelerate. Now, speaking of dystopian realities and possibilities, the World Economic Forum speaker on Thursday, get this, held the extraordinary promise of the use of mind-reading devices in the workplace of all places, whilst also admitting that they could become the most oppressive technology ever. <laughs> yeah yeah we can read your mind it's gonna be really good but at the same time it's gonna be the most oppressive thing we've ever done yes wearable mind reading devices are not a figment of our imaginations or indeed the future they're already here the author of the battle for your brain nita fahani during her talk ready for brain transparency described the technology as being integrated in a multifunctional device uh, set so that, for example, if you're using headphones or earbuds to take calls uh, or listen to music, they could be 
also laced with EEG sensors to pick up brain waves, monitor your mood. They'll know exactly what you're feeling. And before long, I'm sure they'll also know what you're thinking. That again is the ultimate dream of the tyrant. So these technologies are being developed. They're already here and there is nothing to stand in their way. And the reality is if you spend enough time watching this particular episode or at Davos, you'll end up feeling pretty bleak. Now, don't worry. There is a there is a hint of optimism at the end. Um, but one of the key themes throughout the week, the, the week-long event was this idea of permacrisis, which, which if you hadn't heard already, was the Collins Dictionary Word of the Year in 2022. This idea that we're facing uh, an ongoing uh, interaction of crises, whether it's and in the intersection of crises, whether it's food, energy, health, nature, economic, um, threatening our way of life, accelerating us towards a global catastrophe. This whole doom mongering is a feature. This disaster capitalism is a feature of the Davos man, and uh, you know we have to do we have to we have to do everything in our power to start speaking in more positive and creative terms about the future. Now, of course, the situation in Ukraine was brought up. And the ultimate answer, according to the Davos community, is that we find peace by blowing up more people. Uh, the NATO General Secretary, Jen Stoltenberg, said if we want a negotiated peaceful solution tomorrow, then we need to provide more weapons today. Of course, you need more arms to have a conversation with, with your fellow mankind. It's, it's necessary to have tanks and weapons to be able to talk peacefully and come to a resolution that could actually bring an end to a bitter conflict. Now, for Ukraine's allies, Davos was all about doubling down on better weapons and financial support for Ukraine to defend itself against Russia. Although, fortunately, outside of the Western voices, some delegates did encourage a quick return to the negotiating table, you know, to actually end the conflict peacefully without further bloodshed. Doesn't seem to be an objective that's on the table. There doesn't seem to be a a desire for a quick and peaceful resolution. It does seem to be the military industrial complex and this bipolar world wielding their powers. Uh, again, there's a lot more that I could say on that. I don't have the background to really go into depth. I'm simply sharing my perspective based upon a very limited set of information. But nonetheless, I am again, I mentioned it already, I generally am a peace-loving individual and I would long for a world where there is no violent conflict. I've got a young boy, I've got a young son, I don't want him living up, growing up in a world where the news headlines are about disaster, destruction and warfare. Every problem that we're facing right now is uh, the solution is within our capabilities and when we hear about these kind of groups coming together and their dystopian realities, it becomes quite bleak. Um, and that's, that's certainly one key component of the agenda at Davos. It's clear those involved have lots of ideas about a utopian state of a world which by definition often becomes dystopian. The sooner humanity realizes that utopia and dystopia are often two sides of the same coin, the sooner we can move towards more pragmatic solutions that are life-affirming. And my belief is the ultimate answer is to reclaim our personal power, reclaim our agency, and take personal responsibility for creating the future that we want to live and not leave it to these unelected elites to determine the agenda for our lives. Uh, if we continue to allow the solutions of the world's problems to be created by the same individuals and organizations that created them in the first place, we're always going to be stuck on the hamster wheel. So it's time to start thinking differently. It's time to start uh, galvanizing 
groups, individuals, reclaiming our power, coming together to start to build the future because the bleak reality that is put forth by these types of events, quite frankly, is not inspiring. Now, I will add, and I perhaps should have said this at the beginning of the event, this is a critical analysis of what went on in Davos. It is indeed purely biased with a negative viewpoint around what occurred, a bleakness uh, that has emerged within myself around the activities of the WEF, having witnessed in visceral terms the impact of their activities over the last couple of years. Now, this, of course, is unfair to all of the attendees and speakers to tar them all with the same brush, that they're all part of the same club and therefore guilty by association. That, of course, is not true. You know, there will be some very good people there. There'll be some bad people there. There'll be some people in the middle. But the reality is most probably have well-intentioned. But there's the old phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Now, we have to be mindful of these things, that we can have reasonable intentions, but highly questionable means. And we can't also negate um, man's search for power, you know, the, the, the accumulation of power and control, which is often a function of these types of affairs. So we've got to look at this pragmatically. There will be some really interesting talks across the program that don't offer some dystopian future, that aren't part of some uh, contrived agenda. There will be plenty across the plethora of talks that occurred across the week that are perfectly innocent and perfectly uh, presented with wonderful ideas. That is almost likely to be true. But <laughs> the things I've highlighted to you today are the common themes that not only underpinned Davos this week, last week, but, but more broadly over their activities. You know, it just takes five minutes of their following their Twitter feed to see some of the dystopian realities that they present. But where's the alternative? Where's the competition? Who's putting out a counter-narrative? Who's putting out new ideas? The reality is the World Economic Forum have galvanized an awful lot of power and influence over 50 to 60 years. They've built their strength, they've amassed their power, and now they are controlling the dialogue. It's not a dialogue, it's a monologue like this. <laughs> uh, you may be typing away in the chat, and this is a perfect reflection of exactly how the WF operate. You're talking away, I can't see your comments, therefore I'm not listening, and that's exactly how the WF act. The difference is I will actually, after this broadcast, as I always do, spend several um, uh, hours, as I tend to do, reading all of the comments. You know, at the peak of the pandemic podcast that preceded the Elevate podcast, we had thousands of comments and I loved sitting there for hours just dissecting what people were saying. It really gives me a sense of where people are um, perceiving the world. Um, but the reality is that the World Economic Forum is an echo chamber uh, but they are unchallenged and there is no competition. So it's about time that we create some competition and that doesn't mean we start another centralized organization. So it just becomes another form of left versus right, red versus blue, and just a polarized world that is fighting for attention. Let's build something integral. Let's build something that encompasses the value of wholeness. Let's look at bringing together different voices from different places and actually be the change we want to see. Let's not just create another echo chamber in reverse. You know, I've seen the memes floating around on social media, and we've probably all seen them. You know, the the the, the face that says, "I support the latest thing." You know, <laughs> I'm on Team Good. I support vaccine mandates. I support Ukraine. That's not my voice, by the way. This is the meme. <laughs> uh, but then there's now like this opposite meme, as I oppose the current thing, and that's what we've become. We've become this binary group of people that you know 
I'm sure using some of these AI tools, you could cluster people's mindsets around two different distinct archetypes, you know, it's playing out as team A versus team B. It, it does seem that we've reduced ourselves in society to these basic tribal, uh, dual polarity, team-based, um, hyper-competitive, non-collaborative environments. If we really want to create change, we've got to break that pattern, be bold and do something different and actually create a space where people from all backgrounds, so we can actually have genuine diversity, inclusion, etc. Because you don't have diversity and inclusion without diversity and inclusion of thought. You know, I spoke to some company leaders recently and they, they, they were going on about their diversity and inclusion policy. And I, and I said, well, well done. It's great that you've achieved your goals and these things. But how much time and attention are you focusing on diversity and inclusion of thought? And it just you could see their eyes like scramble. They hadn't even thought about it. They haven't even thought about who's coming in to challenge the status quo. And anyone that's worked in innovation or creativity for any point of time will know that if you bring in different voices and different perspectives, that is the, that is the catalyst to great innovation. So we have to think differently about how we move forward. Let's not create another echo chamber. It might feel tempting. It really is tempting to counterbalance. You know, you might tell yourself, well, let's at least start that way to get on an even keel and then we'll do the right thing. I can just see that just creating the zigzags of history all over again. The challenge is to be to, to take take the high road and see if we can do something that does uh, that, that does encompass all of humanity and doesn't polarize and tribalize and further the divide how do we how do we go about healing the divide because organizations like this the political system is all about per perpetuating division how do we heal the divide how do we how do we create a space where genuine debate discussion of ideas can happen how do we start to co-create some of the solutions to the challenges that have been created you know today is a tough time and i'm curious you know why why in in the 20s now post pandemic aren't we seeing a resurgence of of, uh, of prosperity. If you look back to the Spanish flu, the Roaring Twenties followed the, uh, the the Spanish flu. Why are we seeing this economic depression? Why is it different? What's 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 different about the fabric of society today that makes things uh, so uh, bleak comparatively after a similar period of, of of hardship during the Spanish flu? All of these questions I'm asking myself. What do we need to do differently to elevate humanity right now? Now. If you'd like to be part of the conversation about how we can each play a role in creating a brighter tomorrow, I'd love to invite you to join the Elevate community. If you're not already part of our ecosystem, we've got an amazing online community where we're regularly discussing things like this, sharing ideas uh, and exploring new concepts. If you haven't already joined, you can join us at weareelevate.org. And I'll be back tomorrow with Dr. Cole, this time talking about the lost science of common sense medicine. We're gonna be risky. And we're going to put this out on YouTube despite a lengthy session within the episode that, that speaks about the risks of Operation Warp Speed, the vaccine program. We'll also talk about the use of MNRA and um, uh, Dr. Cole's initial concerns around that, as well as some of the pathological evidence around some of the vaccine harms. Uh, this is risky business. We've talked about the erosion of free speech. Every time I put out an episode like this on YouTube, I get nervous because the V word is, uh, is a no-go area. But we're going to take the risk. But nonetheless, if you'd like uncensored early access to the episode, it's available right now inside the Elevate community. So if you want to go and check that out, you can go and see it at weareelevate.org. The interview of Dr. Cole was uh, recorded in London recently when he visited uh, prior to going to Sweden uh, and going back to the States uh, late, later in the week. 
And I've also got a session with Dr. Kat Lindley, which I'll be publishing again um, ahead of uh, ahead of the broadcast schedule next week. So you better get both of those interviews by the end of the week at weareelevate.org. Dr. Coles is already available there, but we'll be broadcasting the premiere of that tomorrow across all channels uh, with Dr. Ryan Cole. Um, and if you're not already listening to the show, if you like to tune into podcasts like this on the move, we've we've got all our episodes in audio format as well. So wherever wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, whether it's on Spotify or any other platform, you just need to type in Elevate with Dan Aston Gregory. You'll find the audio versions of the show so you can listen to it on the move. Um, you know, it's, you, you've got greater flexibility to, to tune into our, our, our conversations. Now, 2023 is, is, is moving fast already. I'm going to be bringing you a whole range of different interviews. We've got some amazing uh, conversations already recorded, and I'm really looking forward to bringing some more conversations to explore the very nature of what's happening in the world, the culture, and how we can start to uh, really affect change. So thanks again for tuning in to this episode today where we explored (laughs) Davos, the agenda. Tell me what you think. What have you observed? What's your take on what's happening in, in the world right now? What, have you paid any attention to Davos? Have you tuned out? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. I really uh, am curious to know uh, what your views are on the state of the world. Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Dan Gregory. This is the Elevate Podcast.